was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode 007. Thanks for joining or rejoining us here in the Cubbyhole. It's lovely to have you here. If James Bond podcasts were villain lairs, then surely this would be Drex's space station towering upon high. If you enjoy the show, then do consider leaving us a review on whichever podcasting site you use. And do remember to spread the word of the Cubbyhole far and wide. We're aiming for a a wider reach than the nanobots in No Time to Die, but with friendlier intentions. Uh, We mainly affect Bond-loving friends and family, and we're not just for Christmas. Hopefully, we'll be with you for a lifetime. So plenty of time to listen to this episode, and you can always go back to Series 1 and 2 to catch up with our full film reviews and various interviews. In addition, Phil in Q branch, the uh, the questions branch, is ready to receive your correspondence. So do get in touch with the show if you'd like to send us any Bond-related comments or questions by email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com, on Twitter under the handle morecubby, or on Facebook and Instagram uh, by typing out our full show title. Now, in our last episode, we spoke to the Octopussy Twins, David and Tony Mayer, aka Mishka and Grishka, uh, a real treat. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know our great affection for Octopussy. So it was a lovely to chat and get their thoughts on the, the cinematic adventure that punctuated their successful stage careers. Uh, in that episode, we also shared our 007 best Bond directors. Uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't Mark Forster. And we analyzed the intriguing scenes in License to Kill, where Timmy D's Bond attempts to ingratiate himself into Friends Sanchez's inner circle. But on to this episode, and talking of inner circles, it's probably time to introduce you to the cubbyhole inner circle, our usual hosting team. Firstly, he's very much the William Truman Lodge of the group, but don't worry, we won't be cutting our overheads anytime soon. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Very well, thanks, Martin, and thank you for the uh, the warm welcome as ever. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if uh, how far I would have actually got as Truman Lodge if I was actually in license to kill obviously fran sanchez does reward loyalty as we all know but i think i would have probably been off a lot sooner in the film if i was part of his posse um of course at this point of the episode we always do our usual shout outs it's a bit of a special one today basically on our twitter page we've actually now passed 1400 followers so our pokey little podcast is now um you know well on the way to uh, twitter stardom so Thank you so much to everybody that's been, you know, liking, following and getting involved with the with the social media channels. There is also a very, very special announcement and cue the sound effect. We are now, this is officially because we're recording in May, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole is two. So we are, this is our second birthday. Now, I didn't buy a cake, but I thought it was, you know, fitting that we are recording the third series and it's our second birthday this month so who'd have thought we'd have we'd have got to this point guys you know where we're two years down the line and still going it's only been two years i feel like i've been trapped on this zoom with you two for a decade or something 
I feel like Nelson Mandela wasn't in Robben Island for this long. You love my talk about car engine sizes. It can't have been that overwhelming. You, you, you are just obsessed with engine sizes of all types. Such a Truman Lodge, obsessed with the numbers. Secondly, he's very much the Professor Joe Butcher of the group. Eloquent, charismatic. He can belt out a tune. Uh, perhaps he's had a little less plastic surgery. Bless his heart. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Bless your heart, Martin. Uh, I'm very good. Do you remember seeing Wayne Newton in that episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as well? He's in an episode of that, just in, um, I think it's in when they're trapped in Vegas and they lose all their money. Or I think Carlton gambles it all away and then they have to win that terrible dance contest doing the Apache dance. But I think Wayne Newton's in that. Anyway, I digress because I actually have a very serious issue to raise with you two, which is that in the immortal words of the greatest Bond fan of all, Alan Partridge, You've got to stop getting Bond wrong. It's the last two podcasts, we've got Bond wrong. Firstly, we didn't know how much he had to drink in a particular film. Secondly, Phil, one of your bloopers actually wasn't a blooper. That's like a meta blooper. You've made a blooper in a blooper there, Phil. I was going to say, it's like I've deconstructed my own blooper, I think. No, yeah, that, that was a... There's always room for, you know, for this is... It, you know, it gets people talking. It gets the Bond community invested to, to be specific uh phil did say that in diamonds are forever after bond's pool fight with um bambi and thumper he uh, gets out and in the very next scene he's completely dry whereas in fact um apparently uh, thanks to don not to point this out he is still very much wet shirted so sorry diamonds are forever guy hamilton the broccolis everyone involved you didn't actually get that wrong and we apologize i was gonna yeah i was gonna say that felt like a very thorough apology there so i, I... I can't really add anything to that. Maybe it's such a common misapprehension that actually it would be the top of everyone's list, Diamonds Are Forever, if they if they realise that wasn't actually a blooper. It's almost a blooper that they probably should make, because we know from earlier in the film that at this point in time, the sight of Connery's bare chest really isn't a good one, and that is a white shirt, so it staying wet does rather reveal a lot of it. So perhaps they should have made the blooper in order to spare all of our eyes from that sight. There's a lot more to you than I had expected. So let's kick off the episode with On the Scene, where we take a look back at some of our favourite and sometimes underappreciated scenes in the Bond series. And this time we're off for a relaxing or maybe not so relaxing trip to the Shrublands Health Clinic at the start of Thunderball. So to remind us what happens, it's a man who I assume finished his strawberry Nesquik and fish cakes before watching. It's Mr. Alan Partridge. We're at a swanky health spa somewhere really leafy in the home counties. Bond, half-robed and in a semi-permanent state of massaged-up torpor, eyes up shifty count Lippy's dodgy tat and rings Moneypenny to play win, lose or draw while doodling it. Meanwhile, Nurse Patty admires Bond's naughty poker bruise. I'd have thought you were just the type for a widow. Well, not this one. He didn't like me at all. Bond goes sniffing round Lippy's chambers and nearly gets caught by the mummy returns before pinching a cheeky grape. Then, back with Nurse Patty, he definitely crosses the line between flirting and full-on sexual harassment, so she straps him into the rack after he tries to ride it like a bucking bronco, the imbecile. Count Lippy ramps up the rack, the editing goes bloody mental, Connors gets a right sweat on, I must be six inches taller, and blackmails Nurse Patty into some even sweatier steam room bonking. Fifty no's and a yes means yes. Then, he gets his own back by broom-locking Lippy into a weird washing machine. Later on, Bond's giving Nurse Patty a back rub with some weird mink bear glove thing, 
while Randy Italian pilot Angelo gets agonizingly close to revealing some actual boobs before the mummy returns, who's done some weird face-off thing, gasses the crap out of him. He gives it the big, I am Daval, with lippy and red hot, hotty Fiona, then drives off to nick some nukes. Ciao. The end. Thank you very much, Alan, for that uh, nice description there of the beginning of Thunderball. So this one, I feel like uh, the calmness in this scene is quite interesting because we do get we see Bond outside of a mission, don't we, which is very rare in the series. We get to see his extracurricular activities, maybe an unwanted look, perhaps. I'm sure we'll get to the scenes with Pat Fearing. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting we get his calmness and he seems very relaxed when he has that introduction to Count Lippy. And that's, I guess that's what gives him away, isn't it? He's so relaxed. He gives away the fact that he's noticed Lippy's tattoo on his arm, which obviously makes Lippy suspicious. On, I mean, I guess Lippy as Spectre number four would probably know James Bond's name anyway. So <laughs> that gives him away. But yeah, calmness from Bond and also calmness from Volpe as well. She doesn't get too worried when Angelo is demanding more money from the mission, uh, she knows how to play it. So uh, Thunderball's not my favourite Bond film, but I do, I do really enjoy these uh, these opening scenes. I think you're right, Martin. I, I never actually considered the sort of the, the elements of the calmness in the the scenes. I do also quite like the the fact that there is a bit of proper spine in this as well. Obviously, when Bond is creeping round Lippy's room and he's obviously trying to work out, you know, what's in there and obviously whether he can get some information about him. And of course, he has to kind of use his sort of cunning and his, his stealth to be able to escape because obviously he's noticed by the mummy, as such as Alan as Alan suggested. Um, what I wanted to get to, as you say, Martin, was with Fiona, where she's very much, you know, I think there's a there's a cold bloodedness to her there as well because she kind of knows that Antonio isn't going to come back from this. You know, he he may be demanding more money, but she's she's not phased by that. She can go up against this male dominated world and she's very much you know she can you know she can react to them just strongly so you know she there's already an, an element of that cold-bloodedness i think coming through but for me this is probably one of the more memorable scenes of, of thunderball itself i think it's and it's one of the better sequences yeah you're right about fiona it's very interesting the dynamics in that scene uh, it's not just that she's in control she's also in charge she very clearly outranks count lippy who obviously we think is kind of in charge of operations at this point so it's an interesting bait and switch that actually it is fiona who's very clearly giving the orders um i guess the sort of the hotel what you were saying phil about the the return of spycraft terence young's of course back as director and just like him from russia with love just Connery looking around the room becomes this act of high drama. I don't know quite how he's able to create that atmosphere, but somehow just where he places the camera, the way he catches Connery's movements, usually in full profile, it really does just uh, re-emphasise that. And I love what you say about the calmness of it, mine, because this is the calm before the storm, isn't it? And it's also the most time we've spent in Britain in a Bond film and the most time we will spend in the UK until probably Skyfall. Uh, and it's interesting because it gives it a sense of normality, doesn't it? It grounds the narrative in something very recognisable before we spiral off into the outlandishness of being in the Caribbean and, you know, of nuclear weapons being uh, stolen. What do we, because I guess the most famous section of this is the rack scene. What do we sort of think of that whole thing now from Bond's rather over-the-top flirting, shall we say, to the actual capturing of the rack? Well, I did want to bring this up, actually, because obviously we see that uh, Patricia Fearing kind of, 
suggests to Bond that you know it's it's going to do him good, and obviously it, it immediately sets up this idea that Bond is vulnerable because he's you know he's literally strapped down to a table. One of the most significant points of this scene is actually the music behind it because bizarre as it sounds, the first time I rewatched the scene, I did it without the sound on. And it looks extremely silly without that tense music. Without that tense music, it's just a bloke basically sort of juddering backwards and forwards. Um, but no, I, I think that it's Terence Young's direction of this scene. It does build tension, partly thanks to the music involved. And obviously Connery is having to do a very, it does very well in a scene that's quite difficult to film. I think it's quite, you know, because it, it could very easily slip into kind of, slapstick and become a little bit ridiculous um and obviously you, you have to kind of get that balance of tension and, and the drama behind it and I, I think this does very well i don't think it's one of the the best kind of or the most well remembered kind of bond injury scenes if you like it's obviously you know there are there are some that have been done a lot better where bond is in real jeopardy but i think given the the tone of the film and given the settings and the surroundings, it does make sense that, you know, Spectre would try and kill Bond in this manner because he is at his most vulnerable in that situation. He's got no weapons. He's got no gadgets. He's literally, you know, he has no defense at this point. So it's only that he has to rely on Pat Fearing to kind of save him in that scenario, because, you know, as she says, he would have been dead had she not come back. Yeah, I think we've spoken before about how the ridiculousness of having a death setting on the wreck. Uh, so, I mean, if you were Spectre, of course, you would. Uh, that's the easy option, I suppose. Uh, and it, I guess it would be kind of uh, ironic and fitting, wouldn't it, for, for James Bond to die on a kind of thrusting machine. Maybe they should have just finished the series there and killed him off uh, rather than No Time to Die. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, the filming is a little bit odd, but I think it works quite well, that kind of jarringness uh, to when he kind of loses consciousness and when Pat Fearing arrives, I think uh, that one has always stood out to me as quite a, an interesting scene, the way that they decided to film it. It's also a good example. We kind of talked about this when we reviewed Thunderball, but the editor Peter Hunt and his effect on the Bond film's visual style before he directs on Her Majesty's. He goes really avant-garde with his editing of the action and suspense sequences in this film. Uh, you know, the speeding up of the fight with Jacques Bouvard in the opening, and of course that crazy speeding up of the fight on the boat uh, with Largo and then his captain uh, much later on in the film. But this is another kind of example of that, isn't it? Just the fact that we get those constant zooms in and out to uh, the speedometer almost on the traction table um i love what you said about the music actually phil because that's going on throughout this whole sequence barry's music is really soft and muted and then it explodes at various moments it does a big explosion when we see the bandaged face of, of angelo as well and or, or rather of uh devour whoever it is at that point um you know he, he's just constantly offsetting you and giving you that jolt awake as if to say big things are going to happen here you know, be on your guard. This isn't just a carry-on nurse jolly through a health spa. On the subject of carry-on nurses, what, what do we think of uh, Patricia Fearing in this? Because she sort of starts off um, interestingly immune to Bond, and yet, of course, by the end of it, has sort of been blackmailed into giving in to him. She probably shouldn't have left Bond on his own with a machine that has a death setting on it. You know, that's that was probably a mistake. But you know, the fact, again, this is one of those scenes that hasn't really aged well, where basically Bond threatens her livelihood by saying, you know, well, somebody's going to have a really bad day today, type of thing. And, and, you know, she's basically then, oh, well, I'll have to go into the steam room with you. So, yeah, for me, that hasn't aged well. And I, I don't think it really refre reflects particularly kindly on Pat Fearing as a character, because, you know, as you say, Adam, she, at the start, she is very much 
you know, the authoritative figure in that um, in that dynamic. So she is not really being swayed by Bond's charms. And, and obviously we get that kind of juxtaposition where Bond is on the phone to Moneypenny and you get that usual um, relationship between them where obviously Moneypenny is kind of flirting with him. You don't really get that from Pat Fear. And she's, at first anyway, she's very much, you know, she tries to push him away. Well, I do quite like that Molly Peters sort of, as you say, Phil, um, she does play this part as a kind of sort of frustrated professional who's just fed up with all these men flirting with her all the time. And it's sort of a classic early example of Bond as a character is very sexist, but that doesn't mean other people around him and the world has to be sexist. You know, she, she is sort of ultimately duped into bed with him. And there's kind of the suggestion with the flirting that she's sort of not entirely, you know, against that idea. I mean, she gives him fairly easily. Um, and also we should kind of give it, you know, again, Terence Young as director, we should give credit for just how steamy and kind of sexy the consummation of that scene is. I mean, the shot of them just sort of obscured by the steam and the glass with the bare bodies on the wall is really erotic and it's still quite charged. Yeah, a little too much rest and relaxation, I think. Connor is Bond's head at this point, yeah. I've, I think uh, some contemporary reviews of the film obviously hone in on that uh, on that saucy scene uh, as being uncomfortable uh, actually I'd say Molly Peters does a good acting job in that scene kind of the flirtatious nature of her character uh, and kind of saying no but not meaning no is quite obviously a dangerous concept something you would not have in a modern day film um, actually I'd say that the the first scene where Bond is kind of forcibly kissing her is more uncomfortable uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think Molly Peters does uh, just relatively well I think with the short scenes that she gets here yeah it's, it's one of those scenes where kind of at the time of the audiences would have would have you know probably laughed it off or just would have you know kind of found it part of bond's character but nowadays we kind of we have a very different opinion of, of bond's actions and i also did want to bring up as well I, there is that kind of element of comedy as well where obviously bond wants to get his revenge a little bit later in the scene so he obviously sees count lippy in the um is it not a Turkish bath, but it's in the um, the steam room? That's a blooper, uh, Phil. You should already know that. Oh yes, very true. Yes, yes. Where where basically Count Lippy is is being uh, in the in the steamer, and obviously he then decides that he wants to um, give him a little bit extra time in there, a bit of a hired setting. So he obviously gets the broom handle and just sticks it through. So there are there are still elements of comedy in the otherwise quite serious scene so I think it is a good mix between the two you know to get in that balance of kind of humorous and and uh, serious I think it's a bit of a rubbish revenge on Lippy from Bond's part isn't it I mean we see Count Lippy sort of only a few hours later in uh, the scene where they kill off Angelo Deval he doesn't look particularly hard done by you know he's, he's not like lobster red or anything which you might expect so presumably he got out of there pretty quickly yeah, you even see it in that scene, don't you? The doors of that little steam thing are so flimsy. He could have got out there in seconds, I think. Yeah, and that broom handle didn't look strong either. You could have easily snapped that into by the look of it. I mean, I mean, in terms of other flimsy things that are going on in this, the, the gas which they use to kill Angelo must be particularly flimsy because it does him in seconds. And everyone else just seems to be sort of all right. It must just be incredibly short range. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the fake Angelo, um, has the gas mask. Fiona Volpe just holds a nightgown over her nose for a bit, so it's clearly not that powerful if you're, you know, more than a foot away from it. The thing is, the fake, the fake Duval, I think he doesn't even have a gas mask. I think it's just a handkerchief that he just puts over his mouth, so, and he's literally in the same area as the actual Duval. So how accurate is this gas that, you know, you can 
pretty much throw it in your, as you say, Adam, throw it in the vicinity and only one person is affected by it. It's, it seems very strange. I think it was nanobots targeting only the real Deval. <laughs> oh, yeah, it must have been. Those nanobots have been around for a lot longer than we think. And now we head to our interview segment. It's for your ears only, where we invite members of the Bond alumni, community and fandom to share their experiences and appreciation of 007. But who entered the cubbyhole this time, Phil? So this week, we were delighted to be joined by Ben Payton, um, actor, author and enormous Bond fan. Um, so he's also on Twitter as For Your Films Only. And Ben spoke to us about his his love of uh, the Bond franchise and and also his his kind of introduction to the series as well. So it was great to to hear from Ben, and you can listen to him now. Am I going to get an Alan Partridge intro- introduction? Please tell me I am. Knowing me, Alan Partridge. Knowing you, Ben Payton. Aha! Aha! Great, so Ben. Normally, we we start by asking where you know our guest's interest in Bond begins, but obviously, at the moment, we're right at the end of the Daniel Craig era. A new film has very recently been released. What did you make of both Daniel Craig as Bond, and, and what did you think of the final outing? Absolutely love Daniel Craig as Bond. I think he's completely just blown the others out of the water. That's not to say the others aren't good. Of course they are, but for me, he just added so many layers to that character. And he took the best bits of the other Bonds and added so much more to just bring this. Well, he's just brought so many new levels and dimensions and he's made it more accessible to a younger audience as well, I think. No Time to Die was a tricky one. Um, Within the first five minutes, but did Bond say it first? We have all the time in the world. I think it was Bond, wasn't it? As soon as he said that and the music kicked in, I thought, right, he's going to die. I just thought it was telegraphed too much. It was either going to be Madeline or it was going to be Bond. No one would have cared if Madeline had been killed, apart from Bond himself. So from the off, I had in the back of my mind that that was going to happen and I didn't want it to happen and I was hoping to be proved wrong. And then it happened. And I felt like if I was a balloon, I just very slowly started to deflate. Um, It was a very strange feeling. I didn't feel anything when Felix was killed off because I just don't think that relationship, they hadn't explored it enough. I had a brother called Felix and all this. Well, did you? I mean, we hardly saw you together. It's all, it's all implied that it happened off screen, which is fine. But I didn't think that, that was warranted at all. And so I wasn't invested in Felix's death. I did enjoy the film very much. Thought, thought there were some great set pieces. I thought the casting was excellent and the script was good. Craig himself, I think it's his finest performance as Bond. But I did leave the cinema with an overall feeling of oh I didn't like that why did they have to kill him they've kind of painted themselves into a corner to try and finish the the Craig era off Ben do you think it was sort of they were not clutching at straws but it was almost they thought well how do we end this and and I agree with you as well I felt it was a bit of a disappointing way to finish the Craig era yeah, it's although not really unexpected because I think because he's a, such a maverick that I reckon he would have pushed for that ending probably from maybe even from the beginning from Casino Royale. I think he would have said, I want to do something that hasn't been done before. And in this little world of Bond, we can do it because Bond will just come back as a an, another actor. So it's something we can do. 
But I think my main disappointment with the fact that they killed him off, it goes back to to my dad, who my dad is a big Bond fan. And unfortunately, he's terminally ill at the moment and he hasn't got too long left. Um, He's had cancer for about four years. And it was, I think, about nine months ago, they said, you've got six to nine months left. And, you know, my dad's my hero. Um, We went to the Living Daylights in 87 together. Um, so he's been there from the start. He, he saw Connery's first and we talk about Bond regularly. That also with it sounds silly to mention Bond and my dad in, in the sort of the same level. But, you know, Bond is a hero to me. My dad is my hero. And for them to both die so soon with each other, that's that affected my level of enjoyment with no time to die as well watching it going my dad's also going to die which is always in in my head and then seeing bond die that i think if my dad's situation was different i probably would have felt differently about about no time to die that's that's um first of all really sorry to hear that ben and but also i think that's something that we would all relate to and phil's talked about this before because it's it's so often your dad that gets you into bond in the first place and, and a lot of your memories of that bond to put on it as it were is, is is sort of experiencing those films together and kind of inheriting that love for them um are you able to expand on that a bit like how did your interest in the franchise develop i guess from from seeing those first films together I don't remember uh, 1987 and the Living Daylights, which I find really sad because I wish I could remember my first Bond. So I don't. I remember my second Bond. Um, my dad didn't enjoy the Living Daylights. He thought Dalton was quite weak. And then that all changed a couple of years later when he watched Licence to Kill and he absolutely loved it and thought Dalton was the business. I was too young to watch it. I was uh, 12 in 1989, so I couldn't go to the cinema to watch that. So what, my first memory of Bond really is... 1995 when I was 18 and watching Piers Brosnan take me to a whole new world I left the cinema on such a high that that really started my obsession with Bond and I can remember then the you know the the teaser that came out for Tomorrow Never Dies where he shoots the the stuff on the screen to make it into 007 or oh man nobody could do those teasers like Brosnan and I loved the Brosnan films. I even remember going to Die Another Day and enjoying that, flaws and all. And I still enjoy it, flaws and all. And then the hype around who was going to come next. Daniel who? What? 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 Never heard of him. And I'm sure like everybody else, ran to Blockbuster to rent layer cake. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, he took off as well. So, yeah, that's my first memory of Bond, really, is is Goldeneye and Piers Brosnan. I guess uh, as an actor, do you always... Did you always have that in the back of your mind that maybe in the future you would be Bond? Because I know everyone, all of us Bond fans always imagine being Bond, but as an actor, you're kind of one step closer already. Yeah, I mean, that would be it's the ultimate for many actors. Um, I met Debbie McWilliams, uh, the casting director, back in 2000. I think it was just a general casting. I do remember I said to her, I need to thank you for something. <laughs> She's, what's that? I said, well, Denise Richards in The World Is Not Enough. And she just burst out laughing and said, oh, you're a fan of hers. I said, yes, I am. Yes. And I thought she was fantastic. And she just laughed politely. And then I said, Pierce will be coming to the end of his time soon. So can you please bear me in mind when you're looking to recast? And she said, yeah, of course I will, Ben. Of course I will. And she obviously didn't. She was just humouring me. But she was very polite and very friendly. But yeah, I'll never forget that. Denise Richards, of all the things I could have said. 
But on that, this is the thing I love about talking to other Bond fans, is that no element of Bond goes uncelebrated. Like, we've been talking for five minutes, and you've heralded Denise Richards and Die Another Day, which are historically two of the things <laughs> no one really has much time for, so thank you for that. This is the beauty of Bond, and I, I, I know, I, I think, were you guys around when I started my James Bond World Cups on Twitter? Yeah, I think we did votes on those, yeah. so it, A couple of years ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. Um, posters, uh, pre-title sequences, girls, villains, we did, we did everything. And it was, what I learned from there was, this is so David Brent, but there's different bonds for different needs. Um, so everybody's got an opinion, of course, and none of them are wrong. And I learned to respect other people's opinions more by doing those uh, World Cups. Secretly, I'd seethe when some people would say certain things. But to be fair, you know, I know I say certain things about Bond and other people may, might take exception to it. But that's the beauty of Bond. Everybody likes something different about it. And for the most part, everybody is respectful with those opinions, for the most part. Definitely. And um, and sort of returning to your acting work, I guess sort of um, still your best known role is, is probably as PC Ben Hayward in The Bill. Um, what was it like sort of working on that, that sort of classic series, which we all sort of watched and all remember? And, and did you have any sort of particularly Bondian moments in uh, your time on the show, like you know, a really hyped up foot chase or, or anything like that? Yeah, um, because I was I was quite young when I, when I started. There. I think it was um, 2000. So yeah, I was about 23. They used to make me run a lot. And yeah, you do have in, the, in your mind, I would bond run. Let's do my best bond run. Um, and I had a few fist fights as well. And I do some classic Roger Moore grunting in one particular fight. It's awful. I get, I think, a knee in the stomach. And then I have to punch this guy who's about 20 stone, so much bigger than me. But, you know, it's TV. I, I obviously took him down. And I'm doing my, ah! watching them back. It's cringy. But that that was uh, that was my most Bond moment, a fight. And I showed my kids the other day and usually they're not really bothered about seeing stuff that I, I'm in. They just don't really care. But seeing me in a fight that they did like that, especially my son, he absolutely loved it. And the epaulets you wear on your shoulder. I was Sierra Oscar 740. Obviously, I asked for Sierra Oscar 007. And I can't remember who I asked. It might have been the wardrobe mistress, but she just looked at me and said... Do you really think you're the only male actor to ask for those epaulets? She just shook her head and I thought, okay, that means I'm not getting them then, never mind. But wouldn't that have been awesome? You know, you, you, you can't get them if you don't ask, so that's, uh, that's exactly. part, of, part of the charm, I guess. And, and, I, and I think from, from memory, I think Roger Moore always said that he never sort of kind of wants to run on screen when he was Bond. But were there any kind of behind the scenes moments that kind of made you think back to the Bond series as well when you're on the bill? Um, we used to get we used to get invited to parties and red carpets and things like that. And that always made you feel like a, a mini celebrity. And I always used to think, can you imagine being on a carpet for a feature film and for a Bond film? That would be so good. And uh, occasionally I would do screen tests if they were bringing in new characters. And my mind always goes back to would always go back to the James Bond screen tests and, you know, Sam Neill and how interesting they be. And I wish we had more footage of those James Bond screen tests. I just they, there isn't that much out there, is there? Not at all. And there's, there's rumour of a Michael Gambon screen test from, you know, way back in the day. I mean, I just can't imagine that in the slightest. Well, I mean, that would have to be seen to be believed, surely. But, uh, but on that question then, sort of uh, obviously as it leads us to it, we are now looking for the next Bond. Um, is there anyone you would particularly like to see as the next Bond actor? And, and I guess sort of wider than that, 
what kind of direction do you reckon the Bond franchise ought to sort of maybe take from now? Obviously, the Craig era was so distinctive and, and so dramatic. Where does it even go from here for you as a fan? I'd like to see individual adventures, you know, standalone, forget through lines, not interested. They, they've tried it. It worked in parts. In other places, it, it was awful. An established James Bond. We don't need to see him earn a license to kill or anything like that. An already established Bond, individual adventures. I'm not too sure about this going back to the 60s. I'm not sure that would work. Um, I think they're clever enough not to have to do that. They need to inject more fun back into it. That's not to say that the Craig adventures weren't fun because I think there's so much humour in them. There really is. When people say that he's not funny enough or anything, I completely disagree. I think that's nonsense. And I think he does the humour brilliantly little things like um what cracked me up the other day oh specter was on and atmosphere when he presses the atmosphere button and new york new york comes on his reaction is superb craig doesn't get enough um he doesn't get enough plaudits for just how good how good he is but yes they, I, they need to lighten it up a little bit they don't need to go down the roger moore camp nonsense adventures but they do need to make it a little bit lighter and of course i do really think that they have to compete more so with the Mission Impossible films now as well. Yeah, I always thought it'd be interesting because uh, Daniel Craig is good friends with Catherine Tate, isn't he? And then they had Hugh Dennis in No Time to Die. So they, they were going for more humour, I think, and certainly in the last one. Yeah, and even at the, towards the end, you know, the, the watch, you know, really blew his mind. And like a lovely little touch. And um, getting back to your question as well with who would I like to see as, as Bond? Um, I like Nicholas Holt. I thought he was great in the Mad Max film, but also... Oh, what was he in? I think, was he in The Favourite? I think he was in The Favourite. And, you know, not very Bond role at all there, but his, his look, dressed in period costume, but he pulled it off uh, fantastically. He, looked, he really looked good. Um, so I think that would be interesting to see. I think, I think you're onto something looking at people who look good in period costumes to see who's going to be the next one. Because in Being James Bond, Barbara Broccoli talked about seeing Daniel Craig in Elizabeth, like the Kate Blanchett film, which he has a tiny part in. But apparently, yeah, just seeing him in that costume and really own the screen in that small role is one of the it, things that convinced her more so than things like Leia Kate. Wearing a costume like that, it's um, you do feel, as I know as an actor, I've done it. I've, I did a few period plays at drama school. And wearing the costume, you automatically stand more upright and shall I say erect and you feel confident wearing them it's like when I put the police uniform on um, with the bill for the first time I felt invincible and I think something like a nice classy costume you do you know you'll you will adjust the cuffs and you'll want to to look the part and just look at the films as well Ben are there any of the Bond films that you think are particularly underrated or that you know that, that should get a bit more credit than they do do you think obviously we've, we've kind of mentioned that every fan has their own sort of favourites that they look at are there any personal ones that you think actually they should be held a bit higher in higher regard it's a really tricky one um, I, I need to see some of the Bond films some of them again like The Living Daylights I've probably only seen three or four times and I know so many people love that film and I've yet to be bitten by it if I'm honest um so I do need to revisit that one I've tried revisiting on Her Majesty's Secret Service several times and I can't get on with it I just can't but I can see why it's so high in people's lists License to Kill I think for me is top tier Bond and it always amazes me when people have it so low I know it doesn't necessarily follow the Bond template but Oh, God, it's just such a good action film. Forget being a good Bond film. It's a great action film. 
And some of the older Roger Moore ones, um, Octopussy and The View to a Kill, I love them. I think they're such great fun. Yes, of course, he's uh, Moore himself is a little bit creaky, but he's so damn charming. He can get away with it. Yeah, Phil is a massive fan of A View to a Kill, so uh, that's certainly not an underrated for him. <laughs> I don't that's... even mind the, the Beach Boys that aren't the Beach Boys. I've got no problem with that. I didn't even know it wasn't the Beach Boys until I was old enough to know it wasn't the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, Ben, I've really enjoyed this because you really have come out to bat for everything that everyone done. Like we've had Denise Richards, we've had Dine of the Day, we've had the Beach Boys section. And this is, it goes to what you're saying, the surprising, you know, likes and dislikes are what really make the Bond films. Do you know what? I will always stick up for Denise Richards because it seems that people, they might slate her acting, but they also say she just doesn't look like a nuclear physicist. I think that's a stupid thing to say. What so nuclear physicists can't be insanely beautiful? That does that's not an argument whatsoever. The only only argument I will ever listen to with Denise Richards is possibly she's a little bit wooden. I don't see her as being a little bit wooden. I think she's absolutely fine. I think she does a great job with the material she's given. I guess that leads us nicely onto our next question, which is sort of looking at the franchise from an acting point of view beyond the bonds themselves or perhaps including them what are the sort of performances that really stand out to you as having been particularly effective if any and and are there some that you really felt they were either miscast or they you know they, they weren't quite directed well which, which sort of always let it down a little for you well i'll um I'll, I'll start with lazenby i think lazenby i personally think he's completely out of his depth in on a majesty's secret service i think he looks the part he looks fantastic there's no doubt about that and he does certain parts of it very, very well. The ending is lovely. He he got this lovely vulnerable side to him and he does that beautifully, I have to say. Uh, but I feel uncomfortable when he's on screen and he's talking. And you shouldn't feel like that with a leading man, particularly a, a James Bond. It's funny that the scene in um, On A Majesty's Secret Service, my favourite scene is when he's in the office and he's just doing spy work. He doesn't speak in it. And I think that that in itself speaks volumes. <laughs> That's my favourite scene. And he's brilliant in it because he doesn't have to open his mouth. Um, I do wish he was given more of an opportunity because there was so much there. But I, do, I yeah, so I, I struggle with Lazenby, unfortunately. Um, Robert Davy springs to mind in terms of underrated. I think that guy is superb. He is charming. He's suave. He's sexy which you wouldn't necessarily associate with him because he's he's got quite an interesting character face. But the way he moves, the way he talks, he's so charming and sophisticated. He's very much like James Bond. And I think his performance is quite scary, actually, when, when you really watch it. And, you know, when uh, towards the end, when he rumbles Bond, his eye, it's all in the eyes. With actors, it's all in the eyes. And if you watch Robert, Robert Davy's eyes... Oh, he's he's that's an exceptional performance. And I really think he he doesn't get the credit he deserves. That's very true. And and I guess and also in terms of sort of moments from the Bond film, those kind of individual moments that we all sort of have in mind as favourites. What are the ones for you which really epitomises what makes Bond and indeed the Bond films so great? The individual I like the moments where Bond is being cool. Things that spring to mind are in Goldeneye when Brosnan is. I think he's almost it might be a library he's in and he's fiddling with something and a bullet ricochets next to him and he just flinches little things like that I say, oh that's so cool but roger moore as well <laughs> the one that springs to mind with roger moore is the spy who loved me when naomi gets off the speedboat and roger moore just looks at her then looks at barbara but yeah that that oh it's just such a wonderful moment that sums up roger moore's interpretation of bond 
Um, Connery, I'm trying to think of a moment for Connery. It's, I mean, possibly the, you know, shocking, positively shocking quip where he just looks the business as well, you know, and, and, and has that throwaway line. But I like it when Bond is serious as well, when Bond is mean and Bond is tough because it just reminds me of the books. Roger Moore has that moment when he's talking to Barbara Back. It's, it was kill or be killed and that. I love that moment. And I wish we saw more from Roger Moore of those nasty moments. That would have been something because he could do them. He was such a good actor. And I know he puts himself down all the time, but he really was an absolutely class actor. And that moment when he kicks off um, the dude's chair, the dude's car in Fiori's Only. This is for Luigi. Wonderful. Of course, you mentioned the books, Ben. You yourself have actually recently become an author with your um, with your first novel, um, Luke Stevens and the Blood of St. George. Where did the inspiration for that come from? Were you Has it always been an ambition to become a writer or was it just something that kind of came to you over time? I just stumbled into it, really. I was um, watching so many films. I became a full-time dad to um, our children, so it's, it's relentless doing that. And my escape was the weekends and going to the cinema. My wife was very accommodating, you know, she'd say, go, you've had them all week, you go to the cinema. And I went, was going so often, I started to think, well, I should write reviews for them of these films, let people know my thoughts. So I started reviewing films and I started my own website for your films only. And it, the reviewing spiraled. I started to get invited to media screenings, which is brilliant. And it came from writing. And I thought, I've seen so many of these action films and I, I do read a lot as well. Um, I read a lot of middle grade fiction, which is, you know, 10 to 15 years old, but with a crossover to adults and a lot of action adventure novels. And I thought I've read so many of them, seen so many films. I'm sure I could write my own book. And I just started jotting a few things down. I went to um, the National Gallery for inspiration where I started seeing pictures of um, George and the Dragon. I thought, oh, OK, then maybe there's something in that. So I just wrote, just wrote and wrote and wrote and lockdown happened. I sort of forgot about it for a bit. Then I went back to it. I just wrote, 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 got some editors involved. And before I knew it, 50,000 words. And I had my story and thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. Um, I tried, uh, tested uh, the water with a few literary agents, didn't get a particularly positive response. So I thought, okay, forget them. I know this is quite good. So I'm just going to do it myself. So um, yeah, I got a, found a magnificent cover designer and just published it, got it out there. And I've uh, started getting some really good reviews in, which is great. And a lot of them are from people I don't know. So, <laughs> so that's, that's very positive. Um, when a review comes in, I think, oh, who wrote this? Do I know them? Oh, I know them. Oh, it's you again, mum. Thanks. Um, <laughs> when it's a name I don't recognise and it's positive. It's absolutely fantastic. We certainly get that feeling with our cubbyhole reviews. A lot of our family members following us on, on Facebook in particular. Uh, but I guess in terms of the, uh, the your main character that you have in the story, is there any crossover with uh, with Bond and uh, and your novels? Um, well, not so much with the character, but with the with the action. I, I mean, I, I've, I've ripped I've ripped off the Spy Who Loved Me, no doubt about it. But I put my own little spin on it. Um, there's a car that turns into a submarine, so I called it a subcarine, which I don't think anyone else has ever called it. I, I've certainly never heard anyone call it that. So I was quite pleased that I invented the subcarine. Um, there's loads of little Bond moments in there, and I even mention Jane Bond because uh, there's a, a female character who you think is quite prim and proper, but she's revealed to be actually a bit of a kick-ass hero. But you know, I, I wrote about what things that I enjoy. It, it's a type of book that I want to read. So it's, it's chock-a-block full of action, 
there's uh, yeah a few Bondian moments with um, where villains could probably do lots of damage, but they choose not to. You know, for the for the sake of convenience with the story, they don't do certain things. Yeah, so that that's very Bond-like. But it's I hope it's an adventure that Bond fans can really sink their teeth into because it's it's fun and it's full of action and that's as, it's the same as Bond. That's what I wanted. I kind of wanted lots of Bond elements in there. So I was thinking about the Bond community as I wrote it. And sort of following up on that, sort of talking about the enduring appeal of Bond, and what what for you is that? Like, why do these films so still fascinate us as, as much as they do? What what is it that keeps us coming back to them for you as a fan? Well, you want you always want to see what they're going to think up next, and in which direction they're going to go. With the stunts, they started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, can you imagine watching the the barrel jump from the man with the golden gun? I've got no problem with the slide whistle either before anyone said I love it it's it's part of Roger Moore's films it didn't bother me as a kid it doesn't bother me now it's camp it's daft it's nonsense would I prefer it wasn't there possibly but it doesn't bother me that it is there that is Roger Moore's bond in that whistle right there it doesn't detract from the stunt at all I don't think it does the stunts are getting bigger and bigger. And like I mentioned earlier, they've got to compete with the Mission Impossible films because, wow, I mean, they have completely taken things to a whole new level. So you do want to see what, what's coming next. You want to see who the next Bond actor is going to be. There's something inherently British about it as well. Um, you know, whether it be the, the cinematography and the skyline and M's office, little things like that and a very British uh, cue. Um, you want to see if they can continue doing what they're doing they need to change with the times which you know they got rid of uh, Brosnan and brought Craig in to update it what are they going to do next how are they going to compete the Daniel Craig era was just so damn successful they need to keep that momentum going so there's this fascination that automatically comes with the character where a lot of the work is already done for Eon I think you just want to know what's coming next So that was Ben Payton. Lovely to chat to him. Great to get his perspective as an actor and a writer. You, know, you could hear that his love for Bond was uh, was really genuine, wasn't it? And, uh, and lovely to get his controversial opinions as well. He he did like some of the uh, the areas of Bond that most people would perhaps not like, and uh, vice versa. So yeah, lovely to chat to Ben. Yeah, I thought he just brought such a great array of life experience to the Bond films and, and, and sort of looked at it from so many different angles. And, and like we say, he wasn't afraid to be quite contrary, you know, no to Honor Majesty's, yes to uh, the Beach Boys snowboarding. Um, I think he could have been a Bond back when he was acting. He's, he's got a great look to him. He's, he's a very dashing chap. I can't wait to read his book. It sounds amazing. So next up, we have the 007 Best segment, where we produce a definitive top seven ranking list in a variety of Bond categories. Uh, If you remember back in our Series 2 finale, we chose our favourite Roger Moore quips. And so along the same lines, this time we're going to share our favourite Pierce Brosnan one-liners. And before we begin, we should make it clear these are one-liners rather than lines of dialogue. Uh, That's... (laughs) disclaimer before everyone gets angry that we've missed out Bond and Trevelyan at the end of Goldeneye. So let's start with number seven. And at number seven from Goldeneye is uh, the line after uh, Bond and Onatop's fight in the Turkish steam room. No, no, no. No more foreplay. 
Now, this is a really funny line, which is then arguably followed by an even better line when uh, he says to her, that depends on your definition of safe sex. Um, but it's kind of interesting, isn't it? it? It's a really direct sex reference for possibly the first time in a Bond film, which comes after possibly the most full-blooded fight scene that, that we've had in the films for a while. Certainly the most, you know, full-on between Bond and a female victim. It's a really rough uh, fight. It's really super steamy and a bit sexual as well. Uh, you know, a credit to how, of course, the great Martin Campbell films it. But it is sort of just the perfect line captured in the perfect way. As you say, Adam, I agree. I think it's, you know, the fact that uh, kind of Xenia is, is almost uh, has the upper hand in this this situation. So, you know, it's kind of Bond is making light of, um, you know, the fact that she is trying to kill him effectively in this scene. So it's kind of, it, it's a bit of a, it's, it almost feels like it's a bit of a Roger Moore style. But, you know, obviously with the 90s, there, there is a bit more focus on the action in this scene. So there is a nice blend of that sort of, the tension and the um, you know the lightheartedness of, of obviously Brosnan's delivery. Yeah, Zenya as a character is very dominating, isn't she? And we see her her sexual domination kind of culminates, or maybe it doesn't culminate in this scene, does it? We've still got uh, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. Admiral, not Robrook. <laughs> it was the other one. One of the admirals. Farrell. Farrell. That's it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the kind of sexual domination. And uh, I mean, I just remember watching this with my parents and feeling very uncomfortable. So it's kind of memorable in, in different ways. This is also an interesting scene, isn't it? In that it's the first time that we show off Brosnan as a physical specimen. He's in a state of pretty much near undress. He's just got those trunks on. And it's kind of the first time we've done that with a Bond actor since Connery, of course, since, you know, we've just talked about him in Shrublands and being largely robed and slightly de-robed for most of it. But it's kind of, you know, it, it's a good, uh, you know, modern example of Bond giving something for the ladies as well, you know, allowing them to admire Brosnan in his full glory. And he was glorious in this. I mean, you know, that was some great hairy bod that he was rocking. Number six. And in at number six, we have... Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. So this one, a great introduction to Brosnan's Bond, gives us some indication of the playfulness that we're going to have. You couldn't imagine Roger Moore kind of dangling upside down uh, in a toilet cubicle, uh, but it tells us something about what we're going to get with Brosnan, doesn't it? A bit of more, a bit of Connery, a mixture of the Bonds that have gone before. Um, so yeah, Martin Campbell again, great introduction to the other uh, character, of course, with the, the skydive to begin with, uh, but then the bit of humour we get here. And of course, featuring Jim Dowdle, you can go back to our interview in series two with him talking about his experiences of, uh, of this one. I think it's also important, Martin, that it's the fact that this is actually Brosnan's very first line as Bond. So, you know, obviously we haven't really, we don't really know what to expect as such. Obviously we've seen him do the, the dam jump. So we know that this is going to be more action packed, let's say, you know, it's going to be more hands on in terms of Bond doing more of the stunts. But it kind of, this is really kind of Brosnan's first opportunity to kind of get that, that mix of humour and action in it's a bit of a release in that sense. You know, the audience knows they're in safe hands almost. Yeah, you're right as well in terms of it being a key moment in the introduction of Brosnan's Bond, because he's still sort of partially obscured, as he has been in everything up to this point. They really draw out and do in stages the unveiling of him as Bond. You know, we see him from afar, basically, when he does the bungee jump, when he appears above the toilet in the grate he's a silhouetted head and even on this bit he's still upside down so we don't quite get him in full glory until right after when he opens the door and he's in extreme close-up and we finally see the money shot Brosnan is here and he's Bond um, and that's great you know direction from Campbell 
who also, I guess this is the start of a running motif for him, introducing his Bond actors in bathroom fights. Because, of course, uh, Daniel Craig in Casino Royale, there's another big bathroom fight. So interesting little uh, mirror image of the two there. Number five. Okay, and in at number five, we have from Tomorrow Never Dies. Backseat Driver. Of course, this is where he's escaping the um, the sort of arms bazaar at this very opening of the film, and he's had to escape in the fighter jet with the um, the nuclear missiles, and and he's just off the henchman trying to kill him in the back. Again, kind of a Roger Moore esque delivery to to what is actually quite a tense scene because you know you you, you get the sense that Bond is about to be garroted by the uh, by the Russian agent in in the back of the jet. So it's quite a quite a violent death as well, but quite entertaining at the same time. Yeah, I feel like it's a nice little microcosm of uh, of Brosnan's Bond really as a whole. I just love the tone. I feel like that's the the un- underappreciated tone nowadays of the Brosnan era is that mixture of uh, very high stakes, dramatic things happening. He's just escaped with the uh, the nuclear bombs, um, and then we underscore it nicely with this great bit of humour. So uh, yeah, I think it uh, kind of encapsulates the Brosnan era for me. Definitely, and it rounds out a really sensational opening credit sequence as well, doesn't it? It's an action sequence which is the first of, of what we've talked about with Tomorrow Never Dies before. It's a really innovative action sequence. It's really different. There are things in it which are new and original and which make it really memorable, and every action sequence in this film does that so well. The fact that it's a jet fighter battle, but it's both happening in the cockpit and out of the cockpit as well. Brosnan's got two things to deal with, and it's just a joke that just perfectly suits the setup of what it was. The thing I also find quite funny about it is that quite some time passes between MI6 thinking Bond's blown up and him getting back on the radio to tell them he's okay. So what are they all doing back in control rooms? Has M already poured a couple of whiskeys and breached for the Jack London? And in at number four, back to Goldeneye for she always did enjoy a good squeeze. So we've sort of talked about sort of Brosnan's postmodern Bond sort of veering between Connery and Roger Moore. I think this is where he assumes the mantle of, uh, of Roger Moore completely, doesn't he? Just that sort of quip, very light joke at what's quite a violent, grim death sequence. Uh, and also a very fitting uh, death sequence to that character, the poetic justice of her killing method of, of sort of squeezing and strangulation being used against her to an epic degree with the sort of helicopter out of control. Bizarre death as well. The fact I've never seen a tree that sort of forks like that. It's it's very you know it's very um, fortuitous for Bond that the you know the tree happens to be there and he just so happens to fire the machine gun that's clipped to a to a waist. So yeah, but no, as you say, it's um it's a very Roger Moore esque uh, delivery from Brosnan and and it really does uh, suit him in this. You know, you you can't really imagine anyone other than Roger Moore being able to deliver that. And, you know, obviously Brosnan does it great justice. Yeah, and it's also hard to imagine a different death for Senor on a top as well. I couldn't, uh, I feel like, yeah, you mentioned it was a fitting death, but I can't think of another death that would be as satisfying as that one and having having Brosnan deliver that line. And Janssen's brilliant in this scene, isn't she? It's even for a, a very overall demented kick-ass performance. This is when she absolutely goes to overdrive. You know, there's only really Grace Jones who you feel could have given it that same crazy domineering energy. And it's just great to see her completely unleashed and screeching in this scene and then sort of taken out so memorably as well. Number three. And in at number three from The World Is Not Enough, the ending of that film, we have... I thought Christmas only comes once a year. 
Now, this one, I believe uh, Adam and I had this one pretty high on our lists of uh, Brosnan quips. It would have been even higher if Phil hadn't have uh, dragged it down a little. I mean, <laughs> what do we say about this one? It is uh, a classic Brosnan one-liner, and it's certainly the one that everyone remembers from The World Is Not Enough. Uh, in a way, you could say Die Another Day starts here, doesn't it? At the end of The World Is Not Enough. If, if it was in Die Another Day, I'm not sure it would make the list. Uh, but there's just something it fits perfectly with uh, with Denise Richards' character and uh, and the ending of that film. Yeah, I must admit, I think you guys respectively put it in kind of your top two each. It is, it's a little bit cringy for me. That's why I put it a bit lower. I know that's the, that's why it makes it so funny because of the fact, you know, it's just... It's kind of one of those moments where you think, did he really say that? Is that, you know, and, and particularly when we watched it as kids, that kind of sailed, or at least it sailed clean over my head at the time. Obviously, now as an adult, I can appreciate what he's in, implying there. But as, as a child, I just thought, well, yeah, of course, it only comes once a year. What is he on about? But now as an adult, obviously, the, the, the in-joke is there. The fact that, you know, it's very obvious what he's talking about. Um, and, you know, it's not Santa Claus. Yeah, this was my number one. I think it's just, it's so perfect in every sense. First of all, in how it's a blatant show off for Bond's sexual prowess in a very direct way. First of all, it's that second, it's that classic question of which actually came first for the writers, the character name or this gag. I'm not entirely sure. If it was the character name and then they got this gag, then frankly, they're geniuses. Um, the fact that it comes at the end of a triple whammy of Christmas gags, they've saved them all up for this bit. We've got the, I've always wanted to have Christmas in Turkey. Are you ready to unwrap your present? Like we get all of them in a sort of feel good triple whammy. And again, the whole setup is that classic Roger Moore thing. It's Spy Love Me and Moonraker all over again. With MI6 watching him, we get John Cleese's dated Millennium Bug gag. We get Judy Dench's really shocked 007. It's, it's just such a perfect Roger Moore callback, the whole thing. Number two. In at number two from Tomorrow Never Dies. They'll print anything these days. And as we've kind of said before, you know, with Goldeneye and, and with the demise of Xenia Onatol, this is very much a kind of, after quite a violent death of one of Carver's many, many henchmen, um, obviously Brosnan is, is quite glib and quite gleeful in the way that he, he delivers this. But it is a great line. And again, it shows just how comfortable Brosnan was with the, the role of Bond by this point. Yeah, I certainly have this one highly because uh, Tomorrow Never Dies is one of my favorite Bond entries and uh, and yeah, reminds me of the, uh, the video game, which I always played as a child. There was a, a nice little level where you pushed one of the characters into the uh, into the machine, although I don't, they didn't repeat the line in the video game, which is always a little disappointing. But yeah, this one, uh, kind of a callback to Lazenby as well. He had a lot of guts, isn't it? Uh, so it's a nice little callback uh, reference to uh, to that film. So yeah, I think it works works brilliantly. Yeah, absolutely. It's also a great visual metaphor for um, Elliot Carver's plot in the film, isn't it? The, the idea of his newspapers are sort of printing blood and his stories are, of course, built on the fact that he is kickstarting this war in the South China Sea. Um, but the other interesting thing is, of course, this whole sequence, it's a great action sequence. This happens in the break into to Carver's printing works. You know, we've seen Whaling's acrobatics given a bit of a show off. But it's laced with tragedy because, of course, while all this is happening, Paris Carver is, is being murdered back in the hotel room. So, and it's only really on reflection that you realise that that's what's going on, which sort of gives it a really sort of sadistic edge to this line. Number one. And in at number one, it's not from Die Another Day. 
we, we, we picked Die Another Day against literally three other films for this poll, and it still hasn't managed to chart. Poor old Die Another Day. But no, in at number one, no surprise, because we play it at the beginning of every single show, From Tomorrow Never Dies, I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Um, just absolutely hilarious, this whole sequence, isn't it? You know, the Bond and his sort of lovemaking is usually interrupted by MRQ. This is a rare chance for the filthy-minded money penny, aside from the unseen bit at the end of You Only Live Twice when they pick up Bond and Kissy in the dinghy. It's a rare opportunity for her to sort of come to the fore and actually enjoy the classic MI6 massive job of interrupting Bond in a clinch sets up a, her own one-liner as well with the the cunning linguist uh, so i think that's what uh, that's what puts it pretty high for me uh in terms of the uh, the one-liners of brosnan just the uh, the amusing nature of the sexual innuendo plus the uh, that nice chemistry that he has with samantha bond's money penny she's clearly aware of what he's up to and that's why she she gives him the sort of the slightly stern demand of you know be there as soon as you can effectively i think it's be there in you know 30 minutes because, you know even in this major international crisis bond is not bothered about leaving his lover he, you know he's he's got sort of other things on his mind and obviously that it just builds to a great moment and again as we said this is Brosnan's real first um line in the film and it just sets you up for the rest of the film you know it's going to be kind of this great international caper that we're going to go on and, it, and it's just a great way to start things and I love that sign off between Money Penny and Judy Dench's M at the end of it as well it's an absolute classic she really has developed Judy Dench I mean that, that sort of cheeky school mommy warmth which wasn't there in Goldeneye she's almost accepted who Bond is but he has his uses and she can kind of get in on the joke a little bit as well which I think is such a nice little development of M's character from one film to the next yeah I guess and then continues doesn't it in the film where she asks Bond to uh, to use his charms against the the former lover um, so yeah I think it ties in nicely doesn't it with the storyline Absolutely. And of course, this more liberated Money Penny, who we know from Goldeneye, likes trips to the theatre with a handsome gentleman. She has her own love life. She's not pining for Bond anymore. And so she's very happy to just sort of give a wink and play along with the banter almost, because she has that line, you'll just have to decide how much pumping is necessary. So it's on to our next segment, the James Bond Film Club. And we had Brosnan's masterpiece, The Metador, last time. But I believe we're blasting off towards a different Bond actor, this time over to Adam. Thank you. Very nice uh, use of blasting off. So uh, we're looking today at 1991's The Rocketeer, which is sort of Timothy Dalton's first major post-Bond film role. And in some ways, a bit of a sliding doors moment for the actor, which I'll come to. Uh, but anyway, this film is a sort of post-Tim Burton's Batman comic book adaptation, a really early, you know, comic book film. Uh, directed by Joe Johnston, who's more famous for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Jumanji. And also Captain America, the first Avenger, which is in a very similar period and style to this film. So this is in some ways a bit of an early kind of, you know, prototype Marvel movie. But in any case, in the story, we're in Los Angeles in 1938 on the eve of World War II, and Howard Hughes has invented a rocket jetpack to help fight the Nazis. However, in the start of the film, it gets stolen and it winds up in the hands of a pilot, Cliff Secord, played by Billy Campbell. Yeah, no, me neither. And uh, his pal, the aviation engineer, Peavy, played by Alan Arkin. Uh, and they refine the jetpack, and after a rescue at an air show, Cliff has to sort of hide his secret identity as the Rocketeer, as he then becomes known. But then both have to go on the run because they are pursued by lots and lots of forces, including the FBI, a huge 
grizzle-faced assassin called Lothar, um, the Chicago mob led by Paul Sorvino, and an Errol Flynn-style swashbuckling Hollywood actor called Neil Sinclair, played, of course, by Dalton, who happens to be starring in a film with Cliff's budding actress girlfriend Jenny, played by Jennifer Connelly. Uh, and so it's a kind of all-star cast list. It was a sort of Disney live-action film, and it's very much Indiana Jones light. Um, the effects are a little bit dated, and, and after a very good opening, and, and it has to be said, before a totally brilliant climax, the end of this film, the final battle sequence is extraordinarily good. Um, the film doesn't quite know what to do in the middle section, but it's a good old-fashioned sort of afternoon movie, I'd say. And brilliantly, Timothy Dalton is having an absolute ball in this. He is the best performance in a very starry cast, and um, he really oozes star quality. He's always been drawn to this kind of role and film, I guess. You know, Flash Gordon, very similar, again, origins in terms of a sort of Saturday matinee-style adventure film, bit of a pastiche throwback, and he has a very similar moustache in this one as well. Um, you sort of sense Dalton's kind of an actor in the wrong era, a bit like George Clooney, you know, had he actually been around in 30s Hollywood, he'd have been up there with the Cary Grants of this world. Anyway, this film wasn't a huge hit when it came out. It has a, a sequel in development, which was cancelled when it didn't make a lot of money back. And it left Tim Dalton kind of in the wilderness, sort of he's always been torn between being a romantic lead or a kind of classic British bad guy villain actor. And this was his moment to have sort of transformed into an Alan Rickman-style British villain. Um, and it sort of hindered his career a little bit. He, he never quite recovered from leaving Bond and this sort of, you know, breakout role not being a bigger hit. But this performance, and indeed Hot Fuzz, shows that had he committed to being more of a bad guy instead of sort of trying to carry on being the romantic lead, he could have had a very different and arguably more successful, I would say, post-Bond career. But anyway, that's The Rocketeer. Really worth a look. It's, a, it's an imperfect but fun film. Totally worth it for an absolutely brilliant scenery-chewing Dalton performance. Yeah, that sounds uh, very interesting. Actually, I might uh, check this one out. I think uh, Timothy Dalton does a great job, doesn't he, with the, as you, the villain characters that you mentioned. He just makes a brilliant villain. He could have been in that Alan Rickman mould, couldn't he? So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'll definitely check that one out. Maybe some people might say Thunderball when he gets the jetpack. Maybe, maybe it should have just veered off into this Rocketeer storyline instead. Maybe that's this Bond script that got away. You never know. But no, I, I agree. I've, I've never actually heard of this film before, so I'll have to dig it out and uh, give it at least one of those films that's passed me by, I think. Yeah, I saw it once when I was younger. It was sort of one of those perennial Channel 5 Sunday afternoon films along with Flight of the Navigator and the Goonies and, uh, and things like that. It's free on Disney+, Plus, so if you have that service, it's a very easy one to catch up with. And yeah, the jetpack effects, as dated as they are, they're still a little bit better than the Thunderball ones. And now it's full steam ahead to our next segment. It's Phil's bloopers. Which film do you have under the microscope this time, Phil? As it's the 60th anniversary of the Bond franchise, I thought we'd go back to the very start, where it all began, right back to Doctor No from, of course, 1962. If you remember the slightly crass comedy show Badly Dubbed Porn from the early 2000s, this is very much the Bond equivalent. It's Badly Dubbed Bond. So there are numerous, numerous errors and mistakes, as you might imagine, from the very first Bond entry. Chief among Wicks, probably the most famous of them all, is when Dr. No's henchmen are searching for Bond and Honey Rider on the uh, Caribbean beach. They clearly have a megaphone on the patrol boat. Now, the captain is obviously barking orders at uh, Bond and Honey Rider to give themselves up. He then lowers the megaphone um, to shout an order to his crew. Unfortunately, the sound editor clearly forgot 
to take the effect off because when he says full speed ahead, he's actually still speaking as if he's shouting into the, the microphone. So that's one of the main errors. You'll also probably notice that when the boat is firing at Bond and Honey Rider, they're clearly behind the sandbank. And yet the bullets still seem to make the sound of a ricochet as if it was hitting, um, you know, metal or any another object. So clearly the sound got a little bit muddled there. We also get one of the more interesting points as well. When Bond is in his briefing with M, he actually mentions for the very first time the use of MI7. Now, if you look very carefully at M's lips, they actually suggest that he says MI6. Now, when they were making Dr. No, obviously they were very nervous about upsetting the actual security forces. So they had to quickly dub over and say MI7 in post-production, um, which basically made it you know, quite an obvious edit in the final film. Um, again, one of the more famous issues is when the tarantula is crawling across Bond's skin in the hotel room. If you're very eagle-eyed, you can spot the very thin plates of glass which separates the um, actor from the spider in question. Of course, Bob Simmons, the stuntman, also had to perform that scene with a real tarantula. So because of Sean Connery's crippling fear of spiders, they had to do it across two scenes. Also, you get some great moments of spot the difference. So when Bond is at Miss Tarot's house, by the time he's fitted the silencer to his gun, you'll see that his tie magically disappears. So he was wearing it to start with, and then it disappears by the end of the scene. There's also a great moment when the infamous uh, scene where Bond tells Dent the line about his Smith & Wesson being only able to fire six bullets. His cigarette magically switches mid-shot. So he, you'll see at the start of the shot, it's in his mouth. And then by the end of it, it's in the ashtray. So I'm not sure how fast he managed to get it out of his mouth, but uh, that's quite a fast one. Um, and then also going back to Honey Rider, of course, the scene where so many Bond fans can recall where she emerges from the sea with her uh, shells in hand singing underneath the mango tree. If you're very eagle-eyed, you'll spot that when, she, when the music actually starts and she starts singing, her lips aren't moving. So I'm not sure how she's singing that song. But uh, I, I think she was miming at the time. So uh, so another uh, sort of slight error with the dubbing there. But there's again, like so many great Bond moments, there's numerous ones we could have gone to for this one. But they're just a few of the uh, the sort of the more familiar and more infamous moments of the film that have kind of have lasted through the years. But of course, if there's any that you think we've missed or again, if there's any that you think I've got wrong, then, of course, do get in touch with the show and let us know. I am famous for getting Bond wrong, as Alan Partridge has often said. So, you know, do let us know if there's ones that you think the clangers that we've missed, if that's that's the correct term. Yeah, your bloopers within bloopers. It's like Inception bloopers, Phil. Oh, yeah, we look forward to the audience response. Um, I, can, I, I can imagine Don Knotts' response, Phil, to the ricocheting noise. They do actually hit Honey Rider's boat, so presumably that noise is coming from there. Are we self-correcting now? We're going to tell Phil he's got Bond wrong before the cubbies email him to tell Phil he's got Bond wrong. Yeah, maybe that's yeah, unfair. We'll, we'll wait for them to do it. It's the third. But no, yeah, we, we, are, we are ahead of the curve in that case. So it's on to my segment, which is Delve Deeply. And this time we're delving deeply into the Bahamas, the Commonwealth country in the West Indies, made up of around 700 separate islands and a particular favourite of Sean Connery. At the end of his life, he was living in the exclusive gated community of Lyford Cay on New Providence Island. 
And in terms of the films, the Connery era is where we begin. The Bahamas is first mentioned, if you remember, by Pussy Galore in Goldfinger. Before she turns to the good side, she tells Bond that she'd like to buy an island in the Bahamas with her profits from Operation Grand Slam. And it's not long before we actually get to see the country. Much of Connery's next outing, Thunderball, was filmed there. Most of the filming took place on Paradise Island, which at the time was a privately owned island, but in modern times is now home to the sprawling Atlantis Resort, perhaps managed by the descendants of Carl Stromberg, who knows, but it's complete with casinos, an aquarium, of course, a water park, and no less than five hotels. So in terms of sites you might recognise from the movie, there's not all that much left. Of course, the white sandy beaches remain almost as beautiful as they were back in 1965. You could take a trip to the suitably named Love Beach in the Palm Shores area. That's where Bond delivers the bad news to Domino and then make sure Vargas gets the point. And you can still see the breakwater if you remember the scene immediately after that that long curving breakwater that Bond traverses and then uses as cover before infiltrating Largo's underwater posse. Uh, That's now part of the Atlantis Resort, so you'll need to be a paying customer to get there or purchase a rather expensive beach pass. And speaking of Largo, his shark-infested base in the film, Palmyra, in real life, Rock Point, just west of Nassau, close to the Wyndham Resort, is still remarkably similar in appearance, uh, unfortunately, because it's pretty much been locked up and left in a state of disrepair. But you can walk around it and get a few glimpses of the interior. I'm sure I saw a news report a few years ago about uh, about it being up for sale. So it would be nice if a, a multi-millionaire Bond fan, maybe if you're listening, try and get your hands on it and return it to its former glory. And as many of our listeners will know, I do try and avoid talking about Never Say Never Again and also watching it. But uh, we do have to briefly mention it because as the unofficial remake of Thunderball, it did also use the Bahamas as a primary filming location. Many of those locations you can still visit, such as the Lukakari waterfront bar and grill, which is where Bond meets Fatima Blush. And one of the government houses, the one with the white pillars, if you recall, that's where we get one of the best scenes of the film, Nigel Small Fawcett making his all too brief appearance. But back to the official films, and we return to the Bahamas much later in the Bond series in Casino Royale. You can visit the Ocean Club on Paradise Island. That's where Daniel Craig's Bond wins his Aston Martin DB5. You can go there as a visitor. Um, I'm not sure if they have unlicensed poker games where you can win expensive cars, but uh, I'm sure you can go there for some food and drink. Or if you're feeling adventurous, you can head out to Coral Harbor and look for the construction site, which was the setting of that wonderful foot chase with Moleka. You probably won't be allowed to look around, but very close by, you can search out the location of the mongoose and snake fight. Perhaps you can recreate the, well, don't recreate the mongoose and snake fight. Please don't do that. But you could recreate the the moment with hapless Agent Carter touching his ear. So yeah, that is the Bahamas. I should point out also that It has been a filming location for many underwater scenes throughout the series because of the clear waters. We had the sea burial at the beginning of You Only Live Twice and the wet Nelly chase in The Spy Who Loved Me. So yeah, fabulous place to visit and just a little extra special with all of those Bond connections. Answer my questions quietly but clearly. And so next up is Q Branch, in which we respond to your Bond-related questions. Uh, What do our listeners need help with? this time, Phil? 
Thanks very much, Marty. So we've had quite a few questions in um, this week from our Facebook and Twitter fans. So the first big one, of course, is 2022 is the 60th anniversary of the James Bond film franchise. And brilliantly, Odeon and View Cinemas are actually showing every single Bond film on the big screen. So right back to Dr. No and uh, From Russia With Love and Goldfinger. So really, with that in mind, for you guys, I know obviously, Martin, this might be a bit tricky for you, being as you're our international presenter. But Adam, as well, what what are your plans for kind of seeing Bond on the big screen? And are we going to do a celebration, do we think, for the 60th anniversary? Do we need a cubbyhole special to welcome in 60 years of Bond? Well, I think certainly me and you, Phil, and mine, if you manage to get back this year, we, sh- we should try and time that visit with a trip to whichever one happens to be playing that week at whatever Odeon we're near for 100%. I've seen some of them on the big screen because I used to live in London and a very good cinema there called the Prince Charles Cinema sort of, I think, screens them all once a year anyway. I'm thinking with this one, I might try and catch all the Roger Moore ones, simply because I don't think I have seen any of those in the cinema, and I'd really like to. And I think, you know, short of committing to seeing the whole lot, that would be a really good sort of selection of them to take on the big screen, especially Spy and Moonmaker, because they were made for that big wide screen. Yeah, I think that sounds good if I can uh, get back to the UK and <laughs> during this summer. Um, I don't, I'm interested in the, uh, we have a love-hate relationship with the 007 store, don't we? Um, and the, the pricing of certain items. But it's it's good to see they are releasing more and more, aren't they, in terms of the 60th anniversary. Uh, but they do seem a bit obsessed by the Dr. No dots. I think uh, maybe <laughs> have a little bit of variation would be uh, would be better. Yeah, it's it's one of I, I did look at some of their hats recently that they've just released. There is a uh, Honor Majesty's tribute hat to George Lazenby. Um, did look very nice. I think it was about eight hundred pounds though, so a little bit out of my price range. I think it's uh, you know by about seven hundred and ninety nine pounds. So you know it's uh, if they can reduce it a little bit, that might be best. Dressed like gorgeous George. He's he's coming back up in the film club next week, actually. So uh, so yeah, look out for that. Phil, on on the cinema releases, you did see um, Goldfinger this week. What was different about it on the big screen, if anything? What what did you find sort of that it gave to it? Such a it was a brilliant. I mean, I, I do recommend if anybody does have the opportunity to go and see any of the Bond films on the big screen with the uh, with the 60th anniversary promotion. It was fabulous. We went to um, a cinema in Edinburgh. You know, the sound and the quality and the the cinematography just feels so much more engaging when it's on a cinema screen. You know, I can't recommend it enough. And yeah, it it was fabulous, you know, and there were great moments where everybody sort of laughed out loud at, you know, some of the Connery one-liners and, you know, where we sort of gasped at, you know, even with the ejector seat and things like that, we were still, you know, there's still that kind of excitement that builds even for a film that you've seen, you know, 10, 15 times. So it was fabulous. Okay, so moving on to our um, next question. So on Twitter, No Strings On Me got in touch to say that do we think that there'll be elements of the Roger Moore era to come in, in future Bond films? Do we ever Will we ever see the one-liners coming back and, uh, and, you know, the kind of Roger Moore style in future Bond films? Well, it won't quite be in the same Roger Moore high camp style, but I think the humour is is almost definitely going to come back. Like everyone we've asked about it, including Ben in this episode, has said they need more fun and humour injected into it. And actually, with No Time to Die, the elements of that film that were the best are the ones when it felt like the first hour of a standalone adventure 
you know, when it was a little bit wittier and, and a little bit dafter and, and all that great stuff with Bond and, and uh, Paloma, I think, in, in Cuba and, and, you know, the sort of witticisms in Jamaica as well, you know, to Felix, why have you brought Book of Mormon with you? The comedy and the one-liners will, I think, definitely be coming back into it and they will need, I think, in the new casting to get someone who can handle that, who can take it on. Kind of similar, I guess, to what Brosnan did, really, to sort of take the action and the hard edge stuff but also carry the humour alongside it. That's what they really need. So that was our Q branch for this week. Um, so thank you to all our contributors. Uh, of course, we always do look forward to your questions, suggestions and theories. So do keep sending them in to our Twitter handle at More Cubby or to our Facebook page, Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, and our Instagram page is the same name. Or drop us an email on rogermoorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Um, so that's all one word, um, lowercase. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! And we turn now to the final segment of the show. It's the quiz, and it's Adam setting the questions, so I can only hope that it's a higher or lower game, really, if uh, completely obliterated, if it's anagrams. Uh, but what have we got, Adam? Well, you'll be pleased to know it's neither of those. This is actually a quiz I'm calling Bond History. Uh, we're in a 60th anniversary mood, so in this quiz, I'm going to give you a historical event from the past 60 years. What you've then got to do is name the Bond film that came out the same year as said historical events. So I'll give you an example. If I said to you, the inauguration of Joe Biden as US president, that of course happened last year, 2021. So your answer would be the Bond film released in 2021, which is no time to die. Martin, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, so question one, the most recent London Olympic Games. 2012, so it must be Skyfall. Is correct. Very well done on both the date and the film. So, Phil, your first question. The fall of the Berlin Wall. So that's Licence to Kill. Yes, that was 1989 Licence to Kill, one apiece. Martin, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Uh, I think that was 1990s. Seven. So it was Tomorrow Never Dies. Very well done. Yes, once again, absolutely correct on both the film and the year. Two one up, Phil. The first general election victory of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, well, that was 1979, so that'd be Moonraker. Oh, Phil's hot on his history. Yes, once again, absolutely correct on both the year and the film. Very well done. Okay, two more questions apiece to go, Martin. The Apollo 11 moon landing. Apollo 11, 1969. So it'll be on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Spot on. Uh, but very well done, Martin. Three out of three, Phil. Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee. Actually, I am struggling on this one. Of course, you could work this out based on it being a Jubilee year this year. I'm going to say 2015, Spectre. Uh, the Queen's Silver Jubilee was 1977, so we were actually oh, looking for the spy who loved me. Uh, so very bad luck. So, Martin, you get this and you call an early end to the proceedings. The resignation of Richard Nixon as US president. I feel like it should be somewhere in the 70s. Let's, uh, let's guess the man with the golden gun. It's a guess that's won you your first quiz of the series. It was the man with the golden gun. My first, uh, well probably, played. probably only. only 
Okay, so thanks, Adam, for the other quiz there. And thanks, you guys, for listening to this week's episode. Great to have you here in the cubby hole. Do check out our previous episodes if you haven't already, uh, but we'll be back very shortly with our next episode, another interesting guest and uh, some more interesting segments to listen to. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. I'm going to ask the question on everyone's lips. What on earth is badly dubbed porn? So if <laughs> in the early 2000s, there was a Comedy Central show called Badly Dubbed Porn, which was basically comedy actors and comedians would dub over scene, obviously not gratuitous scenes of pornography, but sort of soft court scenes where it's, you know, sort of sweaty faces and things like that. And obviously they would dub over with their own interpretations. And therefore we have Badly Dubbed Bond because most of the moments in Doctor No are pretty badly dubbed. Well, half the characters are being dubbed anyway, as you say. Um, you have form in this film, these weird sex shows from the noughties that no one else is... Were you talking on this show about, was it sex, cetera? Or was that just in life that you mentioned that? Mentioned Have you imagined that? I've never met... I've, no, you, no, no, no. You've recently talked about a show called Sex, Cetera because my wife reminded me of it not so long ago. We didn't both dream it. <laughs>